You're listening to Below the Radar, a knowledge mobilization project recorded out of 312 Maine. This podcast is produced by SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement. Below the Radar brings forward ideas to encourage meaningful exchanges across communities. Each episode, we interview guests on topics ranging from environmental and social justice, arts, culture, community building, and urban issues. This podcast is recorded on the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh peoples. Hello, my name is Rachel Wong, and I work for SFU's Van City Office of Community Engagement, and I'm excited to introduce our guests for Below the Radar this week. In this episode, we talk to Selena Couture and Matt Hearn. Selena is an assistant professor of drama at the University of Alberta, and Matt is an author and community-based activist and organizer who teaches urban studies at SFU, Cape Breton University, and UBC. Matt and Selena are co-authors of the book On This Patch of Grass, City Parks on Occupied Land, that was published earlier this year by Fernwood Publishing. Together with our host, Am Johal, Matt and Selena talk about land politics of parks as colonized spaces, as well as the way different activities are regulated or policed on what is supposed to be public land. Great. Really happy you could join us this week on Below the Radar. We're here with Selena Couture and Matt Hearn, who have published a book along with their daughters, Daisy and Sadie. The book is called On This Patch of Grass, City Parks on Occupied Land with Fernwood Press. Welcome. Thanks, Ann. Nice to be here. Thanks for having us, you guys. Yeah, so I'm wondering if both of you could start with how the concept of the book came about. Um, uh, I guess there's a, there's a few ways. One is that we've lived... Um, on one side or another of that park, uh, which is, uh, it's, it's specifically, I guess it's called On This Patch of Grass, but it is specifically uh, engaged with uh, a park in East Vancouver that we we know as Bocce Bell Park, uh, officially is known as Victoria Park. Uh, it's on Victoria Drive and bordered by Kitchener, Grant, and Salisbury. It's like a little city block. And we've lived on one side or another of that park really since 1990. I don't know, 91? You going to say 91? Okay, sure. So a lot, a lot of years and uh, spent a lot of time in it. And um, both of us have an interest in the city of Vancouver, the parks, the indigenous lands, and thought that this would be a really interesting way to actually like really engage with this place that we spent so much of our time in, and our kids have spent so much time um, thinking about, you know, what's our relation to this park and other people's relations to this park and how can we, uh, how can we have... Uh, the best relations possible given the circumstances. Uh, that's true. I agree with all that you said. There's also a bunch of other, <laughs> there's also a whole bunch of other, I'd say, interlocking factors uh, to think about the, think about that park. One is, uh, is it's just a place that we actually, I would say we know better than any other place in the city. We've spent so much time there in so many different ways. Um, and also that it uh, is a place of so much, in, it's, a, it's a tiny little park for those of you that don't know it. It's a very small little park um, and it's, uh, it's full of all kinds of uses. 
um, there's uh, it's called bocce ball park because there's a long-standing tradition of Italian bocce ball players who look like they're standing around having a good time, but they're actually uh, gambling fiercely. Um, and so in any non-snowy or pouring rain day, there's people gambling in the park. But there's also a lot of social drinkers. There's a lot of people, uh, street-engaged people who use it as a as a safe zone. But there's also a really nice playground. So there's a lot of gentrifying middle-class uh, parents using the playground. There's dog people. So there's an intense uh, level of usage in this one little tiny park. Um, and in that, it's a generally peaceable park, I would say. There's certainly a, a, a consistent number of police incidents, less so now that commercial drive has become so gentrified over the last decade or so. But there's still a, a certain number of, of volatility, a certain amount of volatility, a certain number of police incidents and, and ambulances and first responder incidents. And, and that kind of gave us a thinking about that park and about people, how closely people of very diverse backgrounds and very diverse interests and very diverse activities interact in that park gave us a way and an access point, I think, to thinking about land in a particular number of ways. In particular, for at least my end, is uh, critiquing commons discourses. To think through about the, um, to my mind, the the obnoxiousness that 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 commons discourses often are, the, the ways that commons discourses are used in an obnoxious way to paper over uh, difference, to paper over uh, issues of, of politics, to paper over issues of land theft. Um, and so using that park as a way to think through a whole number of issues, um, certainly thinking about indigenous land, thinking about our own familial whiteness and our own familial settlerness, to think about residence, to think about ownership, to think about sovereignty. It just seemed like a really uh, fecund and robust way to think about land. Uh, and it's really the, the patch of land that we know the most about. In a much more prosaic way, it's a it's a fun thing to do. It was something we wanted to do with our family and something to do. And there's it's certainly it's our family that did it. It's a uh, me and Celine and our two biological kids. But there's a huge number of other people that are involved. So there's a an intro by uh, Denise Ferrer da Silva. There's a, a, a an outro by by Glenn Coltard. And there's a huge number of interviews in the middle of the book. So there's like 15 different interviews of different kinds of park users. So certainly it's a it's a familial project, but it's also a project of that's much more collaborative even than that. You also, also, you forgot to mention Eric Villagomez, who did all the drawings that you have the park. My most sincere apologies, Eric. Selena, when you were working on your dissertation, you were doing a lot of research related to Stanley Park. Uh, did that play into how you were looking to researching how uh, around the park that you live next to now? Oh, absolutely. I, I uh, my section of the book um, comes out of like the the question I had and was part of a question that I worked with in uh, in my doctoral research on Stanley Park and Hui Hui was uh, thinking about when did the when and how did the land change from indigenous land to something that could be bought and sold um, the story of Stanley Park is very clear because Stanley Park is fetishized in such a way that there's an enormous amount of uh, historical research on that park um, and uh, I thought it would be interesting to ask the ask that question of this sort of you know, really unassuming little patch of grass next to our house. Of when did that be, when did that shift um, from being indigenous land in the colonial imaginary to something that could be bought and sold? So that was the question I went in with, and then uh, in doing title searches and looking through archives, found actually quite an, like a sort of an interesting story of um, Campbell and Heatley who bought it with all the rest of what has become East Van, and then following. You know, when did the, the as the title changed hands from one settler to another and for whatever reasons that I could trace. Um, and turned out most of those people who were buying that land were all the people whose uh, the streets of East Van are named after all of them, right? So kind of like 
uh, give me more of a sense of the story of East Vancouver and how it's been, uh, the places have been named here um, that are quite related to this land. And then as I, as I was researching it, because I did all this other research on the history of Indigenous um, lands and performance and protest and resistance about uh, uh, colonial land theft here, I was able to kind of tell the parallel story of as these white settlers were buying and selling this land and ch having it change change hands, uh, what were Indigenous people doing all along that was uh, loudly resisting and refusing that their land could be bought bought and sold in such a way. I mean, and it becomes a park in 1911, um, and from that time has been a city, part of the city uh, parks and recreation board and managed by them. And then that's another interesting story because of the, the work in Vancouver, the city parks that's going on right now. I just ran into someone who works at the Parks Board and people are already talking about this book in the bureaucracy because I think it talks about parks in a really novel way. Uh, Matt, you've written about parks before and about cities and urbanization. I've seen you in that park organize potlucks, probably involved in sports and probably playing bocce as well. But I'm wondering if you could talk a bit about how to place your thinking about this book around what you've written about, about parks before in terms of messiness and noise and you know rules about parks as well as that uh, the kind that convey a certain type of way that public space ought to be utilized that's being conveyed by the state or by neighborhoods or by regulatory uses. Mm -hmm. uh, there's so much in there. And, and, and part of that is, is certainly the case, which is that in parks or are, 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 are in, in urban planning and, and, and urban discourses are often valorized as like the, 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 the apex of, of urban life, right? It's a, it's, a, it's a free place. It's a place where people can do anything they want. It's a place where all kinds of people can gather, um, where all kinds of activity are, are, are permitted that wouldn't be otherwise permitted. And in, in many ways, that's true. Um, and, and many of those claims for the, the virtue of parks are, are, are super valid and, and are certainly the case of, uh, for, for Bocce Ball Park. And, and while we want to talk about Bocce Ball Park and, and, and in its, in its specificity and its historical emergence, we're trying to use Bocce as a, as a larger example to think about parks in general and then to think even more about our relationship to land. Because it, it does appear at face value that parks are a place where all kinds of people can do all kinds of things. But take a, a second glance and you'll realize that, in fact, the activities that are permitted in parks are incredibly closely prescribed. Um, so, for example, in a place like, say, Stanley Park or a place like Bocce, it is certainly fine to, to throw a ball, to walk a dog, to uh, push your kid on the swings, to, in Bocce Ball Park to play Bocce. And those are all like, those are all Good things. Those are. I'm, I'm all glad. I'm glad people get to do those things in Bocce Ball Park. But what you will then notice is that there's a much larger uh, panoply of things that are that are disallowed. Um, and indigenous people, of course, will point that out right away. So like our friend Cease will say that uh, the number of times she's been disallowed from gathering uh, herbs in, in Stanley Park, a place where she her family has traditionally grown up, that there are certain kinds of activities that are disallowed. Some of those are commercial activities. Some of those are ceremonial activities. But then there are a whole other range of activities that are very closely prescribed, sometimes disallowed, sometimes regulated, sometimes only accessible, parks are only accessible via a very obscure bureaucratic permitting process. So for example, a book launch for example, about a book is explicitly denied in a park. We're doing a launch, but uh, despite my best efforts and despite my general pissiness about it, the, the, the park bureaucracy absolutely refused to let us do a book launch in the park um, because it constituted a promotional activity. There's no such thing as promotional activities allowed in the parks, except if you own a Cactus Club restaurant or if you own a Stanley Park Tea House, for example, then that kind of promotional activity is totally fine. Or if you're doing a film shoot. And what's interesting about that is that is, is that parks pretend, like in so many others' commons discourses, they pretend to be 
open. They pretend to be accessible and they pretend to be public when they're not at all. They're uh, an area of activity with some very closely prescribed activities and a huge range of activities that are regulated, that are controlled, that are contained, and that are, 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 are not permitted. And typically those, what are permitted and what are not permitted, overlap very closely uh, with a performative whiteness. Um, and so the parks historically have been, um, uh, have, have been built in cities for very explicit class reasons. That is to say, they're, they're supposed to be safety valves to prevent um, any kind of um, class upswell of, of resentment. They, they're supposed to be pacifying. They're supposed to be sanitizing. That their parks have always had a very particular kind of social pacification uh, intent. And in this case, parks, in particular in this part of the world, I would say, are maybe our most and our most public attempts to, uh, to perform whiteness on a public scale. It's amazing that you got uh, your two daughters involved in this project as well. Can you talk a little bit about that process and the parts that they wrote about? Because uh, they can't uh, be here right now. Yeah, they, they, uh, both of them are busy right now. Um, uh, <laughs> busy. <laughs> I don't want to... Uh, um, what, I mean, they did both. They each contributed uh, as as they wanted to, as they as they wanted to interact with the park. Daisy, uh, for an entire year, every day for a year, she took a photo of the park from the same spot, um, and so her her contribution is a a short introductory essay about uh, what it is she was doing and uh, things that she learned from from taking a photo every day from the same spot, and then a collection of photos, and those are grouped in the middle of the book, but also uh, sort of occur throughout the book. And then um, Sadie designed a website, and actually all of the photos are on the website as well, so people can look at those. Um, and they're, uh, they're sort of a, you know, like a very, in some ways, very banal, kind of like everyday, like it's just the same spot, the same photo, like that's the same path and the same lamppost. And, but um, they, they accumulate, they accumulate over the, over the course of the year, and it's totally fascinating to see that. Um, and, uh, and Sadie, uh, did a series of interviews where she, uh, many of whom were many with the people who we know from the neighborhood, who, um, we have sort of longstanding neighborly relations with, um, some of whom we don't know that well, but just are in the park a lot. And so she just, uh, went out into the park and interacted with people and just, you know, offered to them, I'm, we're, we're working on a book about this park. Would you be interested in talking about and I, I, and I, I mean, Matt, you can remember, like, what were the kind of questions she was asking? Like, it's kind of asking them about how do they, what do they think about the park? What's their relation with the park? What are they, you know, those sort of, those sort of you things. On leash and an off leash person. Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, which is, which is incredibly volatile. What's interesting, and, and I, I, I don't think she, I mean, she, we, she and I definitely went into the park and kind of hung out with and met people, but it was actually more, I would say it would be more directed than that. Like she actually found a whole variety of different kinds of users from different kinds of perspectives who used the park for a whole bunch of different reasons. And one of the things, and, 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 we, and then I would say we also, we also wrote the introduction, all, all four of us wrote the introduction together. Um, but one of the things that Sadie found, and she would speak to this more, more, uh, more fully and more articulate than I will, but one of the themes that runs through that park and through all parks is uh, disputes about drinking, and one of uh, one of the things that, of course, that you find when you're hanging out with your kids in a in a circumstance like this is you find uh, moments when you are um, 
prouder than you might have expected of them, um, which is super condescending and awful of me to say. And I apologize in advance to uh, Sadie and Daisy. But there are but there was times when I was like when when both of us were like listening to what they said and editing pieces with them and talking to them. You're like, man, that was smart, nicely done, kid. Way to go. Um, and one of the things that I think Sadie. Um, <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's true. It's true, though. It is true. It's one of the. It's one of the. It's one of the gems of. <laughs> totally. Is that um, one of the? I think Sadie's best and most poignant observations that runs throughout all those interviews is that every single person she interviewed complained about drinking in the park, um, and every single person she interviewed admitted to drinking in the park, um, and so the drinking, in fact, is a proxy for something else. Uh, that everybody likes, you know, some guy says, well, I like to have a you know, glass of white wine and walk around the park when the, the moon's out or something. But I don't like all those people, you know, all those people under the trees drinking or whatever over there, including people who drink in the park every day because there's a couple of drinkers group in the park. They complained about the drinkers themselves. Um, and that drinking becomes a proxy for all kinds of other conversations. Um, and so those, uh, I think the, the interviews tease that out in a really interesting way, in a way that I think most people who are interviewed will be interested in, but also maybe a little bit chagrined about in some ways because of the, in taken in total, you can see the degree to which people presume that the park is theirs, which then uncovers in a, in a, in a really interesting way to me, all kinds of these notions of sovereignty and about who owns a park and what are parks for. Maria Cecilia Saba, who's been recording this interview, uh, you've experienced parks, uh, but coming from Peru, where they're utilized in a different way in terms of what it feels like to be in Vancouver and how people inhabit uh, park space. I wonder if you have any questions for Matt and Selena. Well, it, it's definitely a, a different experience being in the parks here. Um, for starters, the parks are very well kept. <laughs> I see a lot of people enjoying and using the parks. There really seems to be a culture of using the parks, the common areas, the public spaces, um, which is not always the case in Lima, at least. Um, I feel like that in Lima, people's relationship with the parks changes greatly depending on what district they're in. Like in some neighborhoods, using the park can be considered somewhat dangerous, while in other areas, people feel safer using the parks. Um, it also happens that because there aren't many other public spaces available, people turn to the parks to do different uh, collective activities, like, I don't know, for example, drum circles, sports, opener workshops, or even celebrate patron saints. So the regulation of the parks can also be very arbitrary, and it's not enforced equally in all the parks. So you may find parks that are very regulated and other parks that are less regulated and where everything can happen until a neighbor complains about it. And that will depend on who's inhabiting the vicinity of the park and how they expect people to use those spaces. So it was interesting for me to see how the parks here have so many regulations on how one can use them so that everyone is happy. But at the same time, if you wanted to do a spontaneous collective activity, like a free outdoor screening or a party or something like that, um, you have to plan ahead and follow a specific protocol. So that I feel that that, that kind of makes the parks lose a bit of their potential as a community building space. Yeah, this repressed over-regulation piece seems to be a recurring theme uh, right, around here. Right. And, and what's interesting about that is the Parks Board, the Vancouver Parks Board, I'm going to get it wrong, uh, but it's something like on their mission statement, they say they try to provide enjoyment and recreation for all people at all times or something ridiculous like that. When it's like there's literally 30 pages of very dense regulation about what you can and can't do in the park. Um, and the, the, those things are, are not random. Like the parks board will like to try to pre present themselves and parks, uh, parks people in general will like to try to present themselves as trying to become a public or be a, be a common 
And my argument, even though a park looks public, it's, it's highly not public. In fact, it's extraordinarily prescribed. Um, and, and indigenous people around the world are, are uh, the mo have, have been on top of this and have been most articulate about this for, for, a, for a very long time. So for example, a provincial park or a national park, uh, it's highly encouraged for people to canoe, to hike, to camp. But if you like to hunt or to trap or to set up a fish line, absolutely not. So there are, and that of course is replicated at the park level. There's some kinds of activities that are highly like encouraged and are considered to be like, oh, that's a good thing to do in public. Go for a brisk walk, you know, go and recreate yourself in the in in in, in Bachi Ball Park. But there are many other things which are absolutely not allowed. Um, and so that it what it what it appears to be public is a highly prescribed, highly regulated environment that encourages certain kinds of behaviors in certain kinds of ways in certain times under very under very specific conditions, and that's not public at all. That's I, not also, I also I, I think it um, as much as that like that is all like the nuts gone over deeply in, in the book <laughs> to a great extent. There's also, I think, um, an interesting opportunity with parks um, that does that does happen uh, because parks, particularly in Vancouver, which is like such a, a place of intense capital and like investment in in land and lack of access to land and like and then the speculation on land, which has been part of this city since the very beginning part of it being a city, that parks are a place that are actually not part of the market. And so um, they are, you know, there's an idealized idea that parks are these commons that everybody has access to. Um, and obviously that's not true. There's a way to critique that, but there's also something really, really important that parks are actually not, um, they are not bought and sold in that same kind of way. There's a different relationship to the land of parks. And that I think is a like makes it possible. And I think the city of Vancouver's parks and parks board has actually doing incredible work on this, that it might be possible to be create different relations with land, like on in parks, um, because because they aren't of that source. And they have things like, I mean, they're complicated and they're still being like in process, but um, the Stein Valley uh, Park, which is now the Stein Valley and Klakapmutzin Heritage Park, right? And they, it's a, it is co-managed by the Klakapmutzin uh, people and uh, the province. And there's a number of park, park lands around that are in the process, I think, of being dismantled from some of those assumptions, including the news today that the city of Quesnel has just returned the land to the, um, the Lacta Dene people, like a, a parkland in their in their city, um, and there'll be a like an indigenous cultural center built there and a performance space. And so that they, there's a part of at least my chapter in the book is also like trying to think that through. Like, yes, we have this heritage we all live with now, and what the system that currently exists, but there's an opportunity in parks that um, is really, really interesting. I think that's, I would say that's why we kind of wrote the book or whatever, to think through that there actually are places in parks where there are, you can get glimpses of a, of a way to think through about alternative kinds of sovereignty, right? Other ways we can think through about how to share land. And in many ways, parks are so important that way because the sovereignties are, are malleable and they're participatory. There are so many people that think that that park, even that little park, like all park, is theirs and that they should be allowed to do what they want to do in there. And so there's all this kind of intersection and this permeability and this malleability that is not available, say, in my backyard. 
my backyard is my backyard and that's mine and well I don't own it but the the landlord owns it or you know and that's it there's there's fixed certainties and fixed edges of sovereignty when parks it becomes possible I would say though that I think and while you're correct I think to say on this Selena that like there is some really important work being done um, the idea that parks are not part of the market I think is you and I should argue about that, <laughs> um, because parks are because of course parks are part of the market. They're they're a highly oh, oh, absolutely like they influence they influence market and pricing and right. like all that. Of course, yeah. they're inc- they're leveraged like in in the most in the deepest way, and the parks are like integral to to gentrifying marketplaces. But but I do agree with you on that that there there is a plausibility for a market, and there is some kind of like genuflection towards uh, commonness in parks that I think opens up kind of possibilities, which is, I think the central theme of the book or whatever, which is actually there's an opportunity to do something here. Interesting and clear that like the, the news from Quinell is super interesting and there is some stuff that's being done. Um, it's in the city of Vancouver that I think is, is, is where I think we're correct to be suspicious about, uh, because of the history of the Vancouver parks board, um, and the history of parks in Canada, but also I think correct to be optimistic about as well too, in some ways, or at least hopeful about How's the noise level in the park these days? Same as always. Better. Depends what depends what room you're in in our house. Well, you've been about you ball park. Yeah. I mean, you go there in the summertime, and there will be 15 groups of people drinking in a park uh, during the day. There will be um, all kinds of really interesting activity happening, and I think generally peaceable. But I also do think that the park is subject to the same kind of gentrification as commercial drive is, which is to say there are more cops there. Um, that there are more homeowners now. For the first time in the last couple of years in our entire life, I've seen nannies pushing babies, which is absurd. Um, you will, the park is subject to the same kinds of pressures and the same kinds of flows of capital that anywhere else is. So, um, And like Commercial Drive and like East Vancouver, there's still a lot to love about it and a lot to, uh, to be chagrined about. Selena, you're uh, teaching at the University of Alberta now, and Matt, uh, you've been doing a lot of work out in Surrey developing co-ops uh, with refugees and newcomers. Wondering if you can talk a little bit about that. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm uh, teaching in the drama department at the University of Alberta. I'm, I was hired as the Canadian theater specialist, um, and so I teach uh, grad courses and undergrad courses in theater history, theory, um, and then because of my, my specialty, um, is about Indigenous performance, land, and language. I also teach some grand, some grad courses in, in uh, that. And it's actually been a really incredible opportunity. I mean, I didn't, before I was hired at U of A, I didn't really think of myself as a Canadian theatre specialist, although I am, you know, an 11th generation descendant of French settlers to this land. My family's been here for since the 1600s. So yes, I'm, the Canadianness is a huge part of my uh, existence, right? So that is definitely, I'm a, I would have to say I'm an expert in it. <laughs> um, but um, it also gives me a great opportunity um, because my specialty has, uh, has been to focus on Indigenous uh, performance and land and the constructions of whiteness, that that's how I, I work to teach uh, and think about Canadian theatre um, and sort of ideas of cultural hegemony and uh, the ways that theater has been a piece of that nation building process, particularly in the last 50 years. Um, and then also really try and bring into conversation as a, like, uh, courses I am teaching right now is a, a course in, that is looking at theatrical works in the last 50 years, but, uh, kind of cycling through Francophone, Indigenous and Anglophone works and trying to get them to be in uh, conversation with each other. Um, so it's great. It's a it's an incredible uh, it's an incredible university. The Faculty of Native Studies there is um, huge and growing and so powerful. And I, I uh, it's a, in, a really a pretty amazing opportunity to be on Treaty Six land, Métis homelands, uh, Miskatuas Gaigan, and like learn 
after spending so much time learning here, what does it mean to be on unceded territory um, at um, the Mafkim, uh, Masquim, Slavotith, and Squamish nations, and then uh, moving moving to a place that's that, you know the plains. It's dry. It's flat. There's a river. The river is really really important. I walk in the river valley all the time, and and it's a place of treaty and like understanding what what it what does it mean to to have to signed treaty and have those uh, agreements broken and to try and somehow uh, live in sort of responsible relations to the kind of the treaty that exists. It's like a, a really quite an amazing uh, learning experience all around. And that looks this work you're doing south of the Fraser. <laughs> <laughs> um, you had it right. I start clubs with uh, with kids. What else do you want? What, what, what kind of stuff are you right. doing? Uh, Maven's Media is one of them. Right. Think, but, uh, so the story. Promo opportunity. Yeah, promo. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Thank you. Fine. Um, about seven years ago, um, an old man who you and I are both acquainted with looked at, who had appointed himself my, uh, my occasional mentor, um, looked at me and said, Matt, East Vancouver you think you're working with? It's not in East Vancouver anymore. So East Vancouver's in Surrey now. Um, and I didn't want that to be true, and I knew he was correct. Um, and so I started going up to Surrey. Uh, yeah, about, about six or seven years ago, I started going to Surrey, maybe even longer than that ago, um, uh, because I knew he was right. I knew in his, uh, in his indelicate words that, Vancouver, that East Vancouver had always been the dumping ground for the city and that Surrey was now serving that role. That working class families, the poor families, that uh, immigrants, refugees, uh, migrants, uh, newcomers of all kinds uh, are settling in Surrey first and foremost because the housing market is so, uh, so hostile and so uh, unamenable for people without, without tremendous amounts of wealth. Um, that Surrey is becoming the, an incredibly vibrant place that very few people know much about, and certainly that included me. I, I had lived in Vancouver for 25 years and had probably been in Surrey twice um, and, and never stopped and knew nothing about Surrey. So I started doing research there uh, about six or seven years ago and started gathering some colleagues and friends, including uh, friends Josiane and Aklilu and Isaac, and started just doing as much investigation as we could and try to figure out a way that we could contribute uh, to the landscape of Surrey. And we settled on a project called the, that we, we've been building out over the last three or four years called the Solid State Community Industries. Um, and we take small groups of newcomer kids, uh, link them with mentors, and build workers' cooperatives with them. Uh, and we have launched three so far, and we have a whole series of other ones en route coming. Uh, cool. Well, thank you both for joining us. And once again, uh, for everyone, the book is called On This Patch of Grass, City Parks on Occupied Land. It's by Daisy, Sadie, and Selena Couture and Matt Hearn. Thanks for having us, you guys. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. That was our conversation with Matt Hearn and Selena Couture. You can read more about the book and order it online on the Fernwood Publishing website. We've also linked to it in the episode description. Thank you, Matt and Selena, for joining us. And thanks to our production team. And of course, thanks to you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time on Below the Radar. <laughs>